go ahead and open it to Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and then all of chapter 2. All right. This is Hebrews 1 through 4. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Then chapter 2 says this. I'm going to start actually in 114, the verse right before chapter 2 starts. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there's a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you're mindful of them, the son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at the present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might, might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, Quote, I will declare your name among my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. But again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am. Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the 16th century, in a time that had regular plagues in cities all over Europe, the Reformed Christians wrote a document called the Heidelberg Catechism, which was a, an expression in a profession 
of the Christian faith that we, we were to teach to our children and to each other in the church. And one of the questions is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer that everyone was supposed to memorize was, I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. <clears throat> One of the things we, um, we talked about last week was that pain or suffering or difficulty or when things change radically can be a moment that wakes us up from the distractions that we're confused by or hypnotized by. And I said last week that pain of various kinds can help us realize what has been hypnotizing us and wake us up to what's real and what's important. Especially when what's most real and most important isn't right there in front of us, right? It's something like God. What, one of the things this passage focuses on is the fact that it's very easy to get distracted, right? It says in verse 1, it says, So we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. That is, he's saying, on one, on one level, we have to escape distraction. But on another level, we have to pursue devotion. We have to pay extremely careful attention to the message of the gospel and to who Jesus is, so that he really is our grounding hope in the midst of the fears that exist all around us, especially in a time like this. Does that make sense? So what I want to do this morning is go to one passage which puts Jesus forward as our absolute grounding and foundational hope, who can both motivate us and direct us when we're confused and when suffering or fear tempts us to turn away from Jesus rather than towards him. Because fear will always do that. Fear is either going to drive you to your foundational hope because you're going to say, okay, I'm afraid. What do I do? Either you're going to say, you're going to react and say, I need to go to the one who is my shelter, the one who directs me and who, and who can lead me, or I'm going to do whatever I need to do to save my own skin. Those are generally the two human reactions. And what a Christian needs to recognize is we're called by faith to move towards our hope so that God can support us and so we can turn to him and so that he can be all that he's meant to be to us. Otherwise, we're going to do whatever we need to to save our own skin. So the main point of this passage in Hebrews chapter 2 is this, that it is we humans that he helps. There's a, there's a lot of fascination in the ancient world, especially among Jewish rabbis and Jewish people of the, of the first century, because Hebrews was written to people of Hebrew background, people who were very Jewish, right? And they were really fascinated with the angels because all of the really cool stuff that happened in the Old Testament when God would work, they believed he did through angels. Many times it said the angel of the Lord did this or that. And so they thought angels are super cool and that God helped angels and God really cared about angels. And what the author of Hebrews says is, wait a second, don't you see? Angels are really important and they're really cool, but don't you see that they help God help us? God doesn't help them. They help God help us. God has been helping us all along and he's helped us most perfectly and most completely in Jesus, his Christ. And we need to realize that what, however we would be naturally fascinated by the existence of angels if we believed in them, which Christians do, 
But even if you're not a believer, you could imagine believing in angels and how amazing that would be. And the author is saying, that is less amazing. That is less amazing than the fact that Jesus is the one who helps us, right? All right, so what I want to talk about this morning is I want to look at three, just three words in this passage and how those words unlock three truths that show how he helps us, okay? So the first is that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus tasted death for everyone. So if you look in chapter 2, in verse 9, it says this. But we do see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for a little while now, crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So above that in verse 7, the author quotes from the Psalms in Psalm 8, where it talks about human beings being created as God's crowning achievement in creation, and that he made them a little lower than the angel, but he crowned them with the honor and glory of being made in God's image, and, and choosing to say everything in creation should be under their feet. That is that human beings have the right to take dominion over creation, to be, to do what God would do if he was in flesh and blood in his physical creation. What this author says is, yeah, but listen, that hasn't really happened yet. Not really. We haven't really experienced the glory and honor that we are supposed to receive as image bearers, and not everything's under our feet. There's tons of stuff in physical creation that is not in any sense under our control. But there is one man, one human being that has ever lived, who has been crowned with honor and glory completely, and for whom everything is being put under his feet. And so he is the firstborn, or the first, or the pioneer of the true man, or human being, that really is embracing and receiving everything God has given by putting everything under our feet. Now, when he gets down here, it says that Jesus suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, right? So what does that mean? What does taste death for everyone mean? If there's a very disgusting food, right, and somebody tastes it before you, and they say, this is a really disgusting food, and then you have to eat it just the same, it doesn't really help that much other than you kind of brace yourself for how gross it is, right? If all it means, if all taste death for everyone means is that Jesus died first, and then we're all still going to die, it's not really all that helpful, right? So what does it mean? Right, what does it mean that through the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone? Because it's, what it's saying is that God the Father is giving us a gift, right? It's by the grace of God that Jesus is tasting death for everyone. Well, one way to do this interpretation-wise in the Bible is to look for another word that's doing the same kind of work very close by. And in the very next verse, it says this, verse 10. And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should be made the pioneer of their salvation, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The word pioneer is kind of an odd word. If you look in Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2, that same word shows up again. It's the only times it shows up in the book of Hebrews, where it says, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Literally, the words mean the person who starts the thing out and the person who finishes the thing in perfect completion. In this verse, what it means is, is that Jesus is the one who starts from nothing and brings into existence our salvation, right? 
that word pioneer is doing the same work the word taste is doing. He's tasting it for us. That is, that the discomfort and the the brokenness and the hurt and what all that's wrong with death, he goes through before us and he he does the things that need to be done to change the experience of going through it. So um, I'm not saying it's a good translation of the word, but one of the, one of the things very similar is would be something like an entrepreneur, right? Let's say you wanted to start a business and you had no idea how to start it. And there's all kinds of ways to fail and lose everything. But there's somebody else who has literally done the exact same thing. They've gone through all the problems beforehand and they've got a successful business. And then they sell you a franchise, right? So now— yeah, you got work to do, but you know exactly what to do. You have all the recipes, you have the layout, you have the floor plan, you have the financials, you have everything. They've done all that work for you. They've pioneered it. And so now you can walk into success. Is it still hard? Yeah, it's still hard, but it's a completely different experience. Right? When I was a wilderness leader, one of my favorite things was not going on the wilderness trips that we already had scheduled and planned for kids. My favorite thing was our weeks off where we would go to places no one had ever been from our camp and see if we could find a new route that could later be done as a fun wilderness trip for new kids. And so we'd go to like these rivers that were mosquito infested and like we didn't know where we were. This was before GPSs. And we had to like track things with like maps and compasses and figure out the way through. And it was so much fun because I wasn't scared of the wild, right? My, the kids we would take on the trips were, but I wasn't. But once we had pioneered a new route, other people could go on that route, not with ease. They still had to paddle and pitch tents and carry stuff, but they knew where they were going. They knew that they were going to get there. They knew they were going to make it through. And their parents paid money to send them on the trip because they knew they were going to get rid of them for a week, but they knew they were going to get them back. Right? But they wouldn't have known that when we were out pioneering the trip. In the same way, what we're supposed to recognize is though death is still real, it's still universal, it's still awful. It's different now. For Abraham's descendants, that is, for the people of faith, those who believe in God's promises and believe in what God has done for them in Christ, in his death and resurrection, it's different. It's been tasted. It's been pioneered. The path through it has been cut. It's different. It's different. By the grace of God, Jesus has tasted death for everyone. He's pioneered the way through. It's still awful. But through faith in him, through knowing who he is and belonging to him, you're going to make it. And it's not going to be like what it was. Because it's not angels he helps. It's us he helps, right? And the way he, he tasted death for us is one— is he broke the power of the judgment of death by making atonement for our sins. Like I said in the first verses, after providing purification for sins. That is, a big part of the terror of death isn't the dying, but the facing God and being rightly judged on the other side. I know culturally people don't pay much attention to that. But if there is a God who is just, a moral God in the universe, which of course everybody assumes because they believe that when they're wrong, they've been rightly wronged and they're right to be angry— Right? And yet that postulates if we are the bearers of reason, if we're the image bearers in creation, and we inherently know that, it's, it's reasonable to recognize that the God who is is also a moral God. He's not particularly pleased with how we're behaving. The, the idea that God would have, that there would be judgment awaiting us, that there would be sins that would require purification, is something we don't even need Scripture to know 
Almost every culture in the world have, have tried to placate the gods because they knew there was something wrong. They just didn't know what was wrong or what could possibly be done. Only in Christian faith and only through Christ has God supplied the right answer for what must be done. That is, his own sacrifice in his own Christ in the person of Jesus to purify our sins so that we can receive that purification if we believe in him. But then also, it says that he's also conquered the questions of death. It's mysticism by his resurrection, right? So if I—so imagine I wanted to take you on a wilderness trip. And I said, listen, it's going to be hard. There's a lot of places you've never seen. It's going to be weird. You're going to see stuff you've never seen before and do stuff you've never done before. But listen, I've done it. I've made it through. I've gotten out the other side. And you are too. And I'm going to take you through. You'd be more inclined to go on the trip than if I was like, look, I've never been there. Most people die. Like, it's impossible. But let's do it. Right? You'd be like, I don't think so. The fact that someone has pioneered it, has shown, has himself come out the other side in his resurrection and has promised that same result to us, doesn't actually take away the mystery of death. Like in the end, I don't know exactly what's going to happen when I die. I know I'm going to die. I know it's decently likely it's going to be pretty unpleasant. I know it's assured. I don't know what it's going to feel like. I don't know what I'm going to see or not see while I'm dying. I don't know what I'm going to utter, like, in the strange throes of it. It's, I don't, I have no idea. All I know is this. That Jesus has gone through it worse than me. And he has come out the other side in his resurrection. So whatever is going to happen on that trip, I know he has gone through it and come out the other side, and I can go through it and come out the other side. I'm going to find out what it's like. But I believe I'm going to make it through because he has pioneered it for me. He has tasted death for me. And for you, if you are one of Abraham's descendants, that is one who believes in God's promises, specifically in Jesus Christ. Right? Let's look at the second one. Suffering made Jesus the perfect Savior for us. One of the questions to ask about the word perfect is, because in the ancient world and in Greek and Hebrew, the word perfect doesn't mean what necessarily rings in our ears, right? What does perfect mean? I have three daughters. I, I do hope that they get married, but they can do whatever they want as long as they honor Jesus. Um, but if I imagine all three of them getting married, they're very different girls. And I think they'll be very different women. And I don't imagine that the same—they're going to fight over the same guy. Like they're going to—there's going to be different guys that are perfect— for them. I might meet a guy and say, that guy's perfect. Meaning, the overall quality of the guy I think is very good. But that doesn't mean that that guy is perfect for any particular one of my kids. Because there are idiosyncrasies about those, each individual girl, that would make this guy or that guy who's perfect, perfect for this one or perfect for that one. When it says that it's through suffering that God made Jesus the perfect Savior, it doesn't mean perfect in the first sense. I mean, every place in the scriptures testify that Jesus has all, ever and always been perfect. The Son of God has always been perfect. There's nothing lacking in Jesus. There's nothing he requires. Um, He's the perfect sacrifice because he was without blemish before he was sacrificed, right? No offering in the Old Testament could be offered if it had any blemish at all. Jesus, as the perfect Lamb of God, was blemishless. He was already perfect. So when it says he was made perfect, what does that mean? 
right? It means that Jesus was made perfect for those he saved. He became the perfect kind of Savior. He was our type of Savior, right? And you're like, you might think, well, wait, Nick, that's, that's probably not what it means. It is exactly what it means. And if, you'll see it very clearly if you just pay attention to the context. So look at it here. Verse 10, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting— now, do you see the answer already? It's right there already. It is fitting that God—literally in Greek it says it is fitting—it was fitting to God. That is, God thought it fitting. So wait, perfect or perfect for? Well, fitting—the idea of a fit means perfect for, right? So just that introduction already is pointing us in that direction. Fitting that God, through whom and because of whom all things exist, should make the pioneer— of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Now let's keep reading. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Okay, that's the explanation. Who's the one who makes people holy? That's Jesus. Who are the ones who are made holy? That's all who believe in Jesus. And it says, Jesus and all who believe in Jesus are one family, right? Why? Now, keep reading. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, now there are three Old Testament quotations of Jesus quoting the Old Testament as his own voice, affirming that we who believe in him are his family. So he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. So the picture is Jesus is the high priest. He's turning to us who believe in him, and he declares God's perfections to his brothers and sisters. That's us. So in that context, he's, he's reappropriating that, that Jesus is speaking to his brothers and sisters. That is all who believe. I will put my trust in him means Jesus is speaking as a human being, putting his trust in God the Father. That is, counting himself among us. And then he says, here am I and the children God has given me. He's actually quoting Isaiah in a time where there's enormous ungodliness around him, but there are children who've been born to him and his wife who are his, and they've been named after the redemption of God, and he has these redeemed children who are this tiny group of people who serve God, and they're his children. And so I, there's Isaiah and his children who are saying, here I am, and the children God has given me. And Jesus is saying of all believers, here I am, and the children God has given me. So he's counting himself as our high priest, as one who is faithful to God as a human being, and who counts all these other human beings who believe as part of his family. Right? And it says, but, but in how? Is it just because Jesus became incarnate? It's not. Not just that. That's not the point in the passage. Right? That's our Sunday school answer. What's the Sunday? Why is Jesus? Why can we identify with Jesus? Why can we feel like he's a special helper of us? Well, be, I know, teacher, because Jesus became a human being and he shared in our humanity. Yes, but the point is deeper here. It's deeper. He's saying, this is what makes it true. What makes it true is that he suffered. That's what makes it true. That's how he really became your brother. Right? Look at what it says on the other side of the Old Testament passages in verse 14. Since the children, right? The, right all, all these people, he counts as his brothers and sisters. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Literally, it says, he partook in the same— he partook in the same flesh and blood, so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. You see what he's saying? What he's saying is, is there is a fraternity 
that no one wants to belong to. The fraternity of suffering and death. That all flesh and blood bears and shares the fraternity of suffering and death. And so it wouldn't have been enough, and it wasn't enough, and God didn't stop at just Jesus becoming a human being. That wouldn't have been enough. That would not have made him fully our brother and us his children and brothers and sisters. In order for the fraternity to be complete, Jesus had to be perfected through suffering, meaning to become into the fraternity of our suffering and death. All flesh and blood suffers and dies. All flesh and blood is afraid of death. All flesh and blood knows that it's going to die. All human beings share in that horror. And our Savior could not not share in that horror. He had to share in it. And so Jesus became perfect for us when he entered into the flesh and blood and the actions of the suffering and the death. And in the entering of the suffering and death, he became perfect for us. Perfect for us. One of the things I've always struggled with is, how is it really fair to say Jesus was tempted? Right? It says in a number of places in the Bible, Jesus was tempted just like us. He was tempted. And I'm like, he's God. He's fully human, but he's fully God. And those are in union without separation. And so God is present to overcome all temptation. How, how does that— how am I supposed to feel that, right? And there's no way to get rid of the God part. But there's this verse that sadly is mistranslated here. Verse 18. Because what, what it says is important. In verse 18 it says this. The reason why Jesus is such a perfect high priest for us is because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. The verse actually says just the opposite. I have it here. Yeah. It says just the opposite. What the verse literally—so this is—the New American Standard translates it this way. It's a different translation of the Bible. For he—for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So you see, there's the word suffered and the word tempted, right? Was he tempted because he suffered, or did he suffer— because temptation is a kind of suffering. Now, both of those could be true. Temptation is a kind of suffering. But that's not what the text actually says. What the text actually says is, in what he was tempted—I'm sorry, is that he was tempted in that which he suffered. So in the suffering itself, in the suffering itself, that created a kind of temptation. Because think about this. What is the worst kind of temptation? Suffering unto death is the worst kind of temptation. It's what we all want to escape. It's what we're all terrified from. It's the moment where we all would do anything to be free, to do anything to get away from it. And so because Jesus was wrongly found guilty, so it would be just for him to walk away, because he was mistreated, because he was horribly abused, and because he was murdered, in all of that suffering, all of that suffering amounted to the greatest temptation a human being could have in the desire to walk away from it, which is precisely what we see in the garden when Jesus is praying before he suffers, where he says, God, if this cup can pass from me, if this cannot be the way, let it not be the way. He experienced all of the temptation of suffering, which is how he became the perfect brother to us, the perfect high priest, the perfect helper, because it's us he helps. 
Angels are his helpers. It's us he helps. It's you he helps, right? Which goes to the third thing, which is Jesus broke the power that enslaved us by our fear of death. There's this one word that stuck out to me last week as I was reading this. It says in verse 14 and 15, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and then this verse, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. Did you catch how I changed the Bible right there? It doesn't say freed those who all their lives were held in slavery to their fear of death. It says held in slavery by their fear of death. Those aren't the same thing. For years I've read that passage and I've assumed it meant something like, it meant something like, we are enslaved to our fear of death. That somewhere in the back of all of our minds, there is a fear of death. All of us have it. All of us experience it. And it's kind of like a slavery because we're all kind of tied to it. And Jesus can save you from that. He can deliver you from that slavery and it can be gone. That's kind of true. It's also kind of beside the point. What this passage is saying is, is that all of your slaveries are actually structured around and created by and you're held by their relationship to your fear of death. That because we all have this fear of death, because it's present, because we all have it, it is like the lock and chain by which Satan or the devil can chain us to all of our other fears that produce additional slaveries. Right? There's this passage in Job. I don't know if you know this, but like Satan is not personified in the Bible very much. The Bible does not perseverate on the devil and what the devil does and what the devil says. There are very few places in the Bible where the devil gets to speak at all. One of the first times in the Bible where Hasatan or the Satan, the accuser, shows up is in the book of Job, where this guy Job, who's a godly man, is being tempted to curse God. And Job has already taken away all of his belongings. He was a very rich man and killed all of his family. And Job hasn't lost his integrity in trusting God, right? And so Satan comes back and God's like, hey, you did all these things against Job. You incited me against him. I let you do those things. You said that he would break his integrity and his faith, and he didn't, right? And so Satan makes his second offer, and he says this. He says, skin for skin, Satan replied, a man will give all he has for his own life, right? You see, Satan would have liked to turn somebody against God for the smallest possible thing, because it's more profane, right? If you can get somebody— to abandon God because of their love of sugar. And you're a, a, a devil. That's, that's more beautiful than anything bigger. Because for somebody to sell their soul and their existence and their humanity and their identity to something so trivial, right? Mmm, it's tasty from hell's perspective, right? But when somebody won't buckle, he goes to a deeper fear, a deeper slavery, a deeper lever where he has more leverage. And at bottom, the place he has the most leverage is skin for skin. People do whatever they have to to save their necks. And then if that fear exists, all other fears can be built on top of it. Here's a terrible illustration of this, but the best I can think of so far. 
think about why everybody obeys the government, right? On all its levels. Why do we obey the government? There's probably some stuff the government does that you love and you would obey because you think it's fantastic. And there's other stuff you're like, this is so dumb. Why do we have to do this? Why are we driving 30 miles an hour here? Why am I paying this tax? Why can't we do this, right? Well, on one level, it's because you're supposed to, or because there's a law, or because everybody else is doing it. But all the way back, if you disobey and you disobey and you disobey, right, things get amped up. And at some point, there is a man with a gun who can take you to a prison and can confiscate everything you have. And because at the very end that's the case, we all stand in line at the DMV and there's no problems, right? Similarly, the, the power of the devil or of sin in the flesh is at the very bottom is the sphere of death. Skin for skin, a man will do anything to save his neck. And if that's true about you and me, then all these other layers of control can be built over that. Because at the bottom, you can be attacked here. And so you can be attacked here. And you can be attacked here. And anything that connects back to that fear of death, that fear of the need to save yourself, works. And see, you're like, well, what, why, what's that have to do with Jesus' incarnation? Well, here's why. We are the only celestially conscious beings that have bodies. Right? Like in the biblical worldview, there is God, the ultimate mind and being, right? The divine one. There are angels and demons who are spiritual beings. And then there's us who are divine image bearers, right? We're the only ones with flesh and blood. We're the only ones that die. We're the only ones that have this experience. It's very weird. And yet, because this is our experience, and we don't understand ourselves or experience ourselves as pure spirits, we don't have any idea what it's like to not be facing death all the time, being in frail bodies, dealing with flesh and blood, living in the fraternity of suffering. And because of that, what makes us useful in God's created world as his vice regents over all of creation also makes us vulnerable to a particular kind of slavery because we can suffer and die. And on that, that which makes us useful, that we're incarnate in flesh and blood, also makes us vulnerable to a particular kind of slavery. Slavery to the fear of death. And so if we are going to be free, if we're going to live for God, if we're not going to be controlled, if we're not, every time fear comes to us, going to run towards whatever will save our neck or our skin in whatever way we feel threatened, right? The lock and chain of the ultimate connection to the fear of death has to be once and finally broken by a perfect Savior, one who has entered fully into the fraternity of suffering and death, fully human, who's destroyed what death does, who's gone all the way through it himself, and who stands capable of sympathizing with us because in his suffering, he really experienced the temptations that we suffer so that in those moments, not only will we be broken from the chain of the slavery of the fear of death, but we will have somewhere to turn, not just to faith generally or amorphously, but to a particular embodiment of all that is faithful, right? From the Heidelberg Catechism, my faithful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our faithful high priest, right? There is a, a one, a person who we can turn to, who has joined our most painful fraternity, who has suffered all of the temptation because of the depth of his suffering, who was not himself bound to the slavery of the fear of death, who himself pioneered through the trail of death, guiding us through it, taking away not its mystery, but its sting, 
so that you and I can live completely free of the control of the fear of death. But listen, it's only going to happen if we pay very careful attention to what we have heard. You see, for a lot of us, we're not so emotionally moved by and centered by and built on the foundation of and strengthened in and motivated by the hope of Jesus because Jesus is such a caricature to us. He's so— He's just a bunch of aphorisms of religious things we've stuck together. We don't know the real Jesus. And so we're not taken with the great pioneer that he is, that he's tasted death, that he's done all these things, that he's the perfect high priest. We don't see it. Because we don't see it, we don't believe in him to lead us through. We're not sure that he's done the things. We don't find comfort in what he's accomplished. We have to pay very careful attention. The book of Hebrews goes on for another 12 chapters about how great— and perfect, and amazing, and incredible a salvation. Remember, it says, listen, the Old Testament was pretty great. It was put in by angels. And when people disobeyed it, it was a big problem, and there was judgment. How will we possibly escape judgment if we ignore these words? Such a great salvation, right? And so the freedom is in the details. You have to actually get to know the Jesus who is our great high priest. And you have to recognize that the freedom and the direction and the hope is mostly found not just in a general philosophical Christian philosophy, but it is all wrapped up and put together in the perfect creator of our faith, the high priest Jesus himself. You don't put your faith in Christianity. You become a Christian by putting your trust and faith in Jesus himself. God himself in the man Jesus Christ. You, you just, you, and how you do this is, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're a Christian, you keep doing this to train yourself. If you're, if you aren't a Christian, you do this to become one, is you tell Jesus that you have been a slave to the fear of death. It has led you to do many wrong things away from him and, and that should infuriate him because they were awful. And that instead you wish to receive his purification for sins. And to have him as your great and perfect high priest who has come into the fraternity of death and suffering for you. And you want him to be your own. You want him to be your brother, your high priest, your savior, your God. And God says when that happens, God says, here I am in Christ and the children that God has given me. And you are one of those children. And if you've never done that, do it right now. As soon as your heart is persuaded of it, or you're capable of belief, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Do it right now. And if you are a believer, go through the process again to bear yourself the comfort and the spirit of remembering who you are and to re-separate yourself from the fear of death, because otherwise you'll be enslaved not just to it, but by it. Okay, I'm going to pray to Jesus, the great high priest. Um, Nicole and, and JJ are going to come back. And we're going to end with three songs of worship. I want to encourage you to give your voice, your heart, your profession, your whole soul to the content and the theology and the truth of these songs and to adore God for all he's worth because he deserves it and it will please him and it will help you and change you. Let's pray. God, as we turn our hearts to you and as we profess our love for you and as we sing these songs to you, Please help us to sing out loud no matter, well, no matter where we are, no matter who we are, no matter what we're doing, no matter how bad we think our voice is, no matter how few people are in the room and how much will be heard. 
Help us to give our hearts to you entirely and to, to respond in faith to the hope that is in Christ and to worship and serve and trust in him, the perfect high priest. In Jesus' name, amen.